We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Dark. Welcome to another episode of the Dark and Dower. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And joining me today is my co-host, Richard Cox. Richard, uh, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Adam. Yeah, good, thank you. Hey, we're with uh, a very esteemed guest from the Hoover Institution, Cole Bunzel, who I've been following for quite some time, uh, Hoover Institution from Stanford University. He's an historian and Arabist. He studies the history and contemporary affairs of the Islamic Middle East with a particular focus on violent Islamism and the Arabian Peninsula. He is also the editor of the blog Jihadika, which will be in the description, and has written widely on the ideology of Sunni Jihadism. His current book project, which we're going to be talking about today, Wahhabism, the history of a militant Islamic movement, which draws on array of very rare manuscripts and other primary sources in Arabic, which provides a new account of the history and doctrine of Wahhabism, which gave rise to groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Um, Bunzel received his master's in international relations from the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and his bachelor's and PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University. He has been a research fellow in Islamic law and civilization at the Yale Law School and is a non-resident fellow at the George Washington University Program on Extremism. Uh, Cole, very much, very much, many thank yous for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Cole, this is your very first book, and it was a whopper to begin with. Um, why, why this book and why now? Well, the book comes out of my, my PhD dissertation uh, at Princeton University, which I uh, completed in 2018. And, you know, I was interested in uh, Saudi Arabia and its history. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to study, really. But I, when you go into a PhD program and you're interested in history of the Middle East, there are certain areas that receive a lot of attention that have been written about, you know, widely by numerous scholars. So, example, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria... Uh, some lesser extent, North Africa, uh, but Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states more generally have received quite uh, little attention comparatively. So I became interested in that uh, for that reason and started going to the kingdom on, on research trips. It was a very closed uh, country still at the time, but it was beginning to open up to, to foreign uh, academics. So that's kind of how I got interested in Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, I had a parallel interest in the uh, the Sunni jihadi movement, that the movement, of course, associated with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but which goes back to at least the 1970s. Um, and a lot of the the ideologues or the, as what they would call themselves, the scholars of the ulama, the sheikhs of, of this movement, uh, some of whom I've met now, they uh, they draw extensively on the tradition 
of what we call in the West Wahhabism, which is the uh, the Islamic revivalist movement that emerges in what is today Saudi Arabia in the mid 18th century. And so uh, because of that parallel interest and a an, an interest in studying the history of Saudi Arabia, I I gravitated toward the uh, history and doctrine of Wahhabism, which uh, another reason I became so interested and fascinated with it is because it had been uh, not studied very much by, uh, in particular, Islamists. Those uh, that is scholars of uh, of Islam and Islamic thought and uh, and law and theology. Um, but there's so many sources. Uh, there was so much to kind of uh, go back over. Um, there's some work that was you know fairly good. Um, very helpful, uh, foundational to the study of Wahhabism and, and Western scholarship, but a lot of work was also very, I think, misleading, uh, misconceived, and uh, and fundamentally flawed. So uh, I ended up writing kind of a comprehensive work about Wahhabism to at least from it, from its origins and particularly to the early 20th century when you begin to see uh, some slackening of its its militant principles, which I'm sure we'll go into. Sure. And, you know, look, um, you know, I, like I said before we started recording was that, uh, you know, I tried to study the motivations of, say, the 9-11 hijackers, for example, and why they would do this and what drove them to do this. Was it about Islam or was it about uh, something else, political or apolitical? And when I heard the term Wahhabism, um, I, I re reiterate your point about uh, very few uh uh, solid uh, reading material regarding the history of it. This is the first book that I've come across. And, you know, I've I've read, you know, scholarly books by some of the best experts in the world, like Thomas Hedgehammer and Ann Sterenson, uh and others like Tor Hamming, your, your, your fellow colleagues. Um, and I know about, you know, very little in the layman's terms regarding Wahhabism and the founder Muhammad Ibn Adela Wahhab, and uh, this is the first comprehensive text, and it was comprehensive, but I think I'm being liberal here. It was very meticulous and well-researched. It is heavily referenced, and it took me a while to basically go back and look at my notes and stuff. But let's go back to Muhammad Ibn Adel Wahhab um, in regards to how you wrote about him. And it, it seems fascinating to me that, you know, he's born in the settlement in Val Uyana, uh, born in 1703, which is the leading town in Najat, a very key area of the Emirate Dariya, which is later Saudi Arabia. And the family of al-Wahhab were from al-Mushara, and it's the family yeah. were its leading scholars. Uh, the leading tradition in Najat at the time was, as you write it, Hanbaliism. Um, yeah. So I got two questions here. What is Hanbaliism? And uh, the family had practiced Hanbaliism, which is directly in an opposition of al-Wahhab's uh, ideology that he wanted to uh, implement, which was Wahhabism. What, what, are, what are the difference between the two? Okay, so Hanbalism, or the, the Hanbali Medheb, is one of the four mainstream schools of Islamic law in, in Sunni Islam. So you have Shafism, Hanafism, Malikism, and Hanbalism. Hanbalism was a minority school. It was uh, followed really only in pockets of, of Syria and to a lesser extent Iraq. Um, and in where it was dominant, however, was in this area of Nejd, which is a, a large plateau area in the center of the Arabian Peninsula. And it had been the uh, scholars from Saudi Arabia uh, believe that it had been the dominant medheb or school of law uh, since 
approximately the, the 13th century and why we're not really sure. But that's where the kind of Hanbali tradition uh, existed. But what's important to understand is that when, when it comes to Wahhabism, many of um, so, some scholars of uh, Islam in the West have asserted that Hanbalism gave rise to Wahhabism because Hanbalism was the strictest of the schools of law. Um, that's not really true because the I mean, the fact is that Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab was opposed by a lot of his fellow Hanbalis. In fact, almost all of the, the scholars, the religious mm -hmm. scholars of his era were Hanbalis and they opposed him. Um, but there was a particular strain of theology within Hanbalism that Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab appealed to. Um, and that is a strain of thought associated with a man named Ibn Taymiyyah and his student Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, who were 14th century Hanbali scholars who lived in Syria, Damascus primarily. And those scholars uh, had a very, very strict understanding of uh, Tawhid or God's oneness, sometimes translated as monotheism. Uh, they believed uh, that a, a whole lot of the Muslim world was wayward, that it had fallen away from the faith um, because of innovative practices, particularly practices associated with um, shrine or grave rituals, appealing to the dead, uh, etc. So Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, um, he seizes on that aspect of the Hanbali tradition. And with that, he begins a, a movement predicated on the, we could call it the Taymiyyan uh, version of, of Tawhid or God's oneness. Did uh, I answer the question? Yeah, no, no, fine. No, thank you very much. A interestingly enough, um, you know, Al Wahhab, uh, as he was uh, later in his formal years, would hold debates over the supplication of the dead and visiting the graves. And he's, his belief was that uh, that only Allah had the validity to be worshipped alone. But you also mentioned in a book, which I, I had not known before, you mentioned that while in the town of uh, Hurval Milir, after the death of his father, who, by the way, was um, uh, you know in the middle of these very tense arguments, Al-Wahhab yeah. launched a pred predictory campaign against polytheism while while calling on people to direct to direct worship, his father and brother even censored his views. And did this lead to Al Wahhab to become more invested in his doctrine? Yes. Yeah, so, so as you said, um, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, he belonged to a distinguished scholarly family, many of the El Musharraf, as you as you rightly noted, and they uh, contributed numerous uh, Islamic scholars and judges people who are kind of the, the legal authority um, in, in, the, in these various towns within Nejd. Um, but he, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab was something of a, a wayward son. And uh, he had, there are really only a lot of rumors that we read in the, in the refutations of him, but he had a very uh, complicated relationship with his father, who was the chief judge of a little town called Horemila, mm -hmm. where he was living at the time. This is in the 1730s um, until, the, until early 1740s. Um, and so what seems to have happened is that his father held him in check. Um, Muhammad Abdul Wahhab had these ideas about polytheism and how everyone around him was, in fact, not really Muslim because uh, they either participated in grave worship, as he understood it. Um, this was kind of supplicating saints, appealing to, to the dead, dead people considered uh, holy men uh, for, for favors, either in this world or, or in the afterlife. And for Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, this was shirk. This was polytheism. Hmm. It was associating others in the worship of God. 
And that was a cardinal sin, and that excluded one from uh, the faith. And uh, But he did not preach these ideas until his father died in 1741. And that's when he begins kind of preaching openly, uh, writing epistles, uh, or Rasael, these, uh, these documents where he summarizes his ideas about Tawhid and Shirk, about monotheism and polytheism, uh, calling on people to reject polytheism and to direct their worship to God alone, or else they will be, uh, they will be condemned to hellfire. So quite a controversial uh, statement for the, the upstart preacher. And he, he it didn't it didn't end there. As you noted also in the book, that one of his earliest critics was Hambali Muhammad Ibn uh, Al-Falik, um, who suggested that he had contempt for Wahhab's uh, false teachings. Can I just explain a little bit more about this? That that he had contempt. Sorry. Yeah, uh, he, he had contempt right. for Wahhab's teachings. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So. As soon as Muhammad Abdul Wahab starts preaching and starts sending epistles to first nearby towns in Nejd, and increasingly these epistles reach uh, places as far away as, as Basra in southern Iraq, and they go to the Hijaz, Mecca, and Medina in the west, even to, to Yemen uh, farther south. As soon as he begins preaching uh, publicly and sending epistles, he attracts a, a large number of critics. These are Muslim scholars themselves who are reading these works and saying, this guy is a fraud. He is not only a fraud, he's a very dangerous fraud. He, he's leading people astray, leading them uh, to takfir, to declare others to be uh, non-Muslims. Takfir, of course, we all know that word if we study jihadism today. But it's true. Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab was accusing other Muslims of being polytheists, which is to engage in Takfir. So he was met with a uh, vitriolic response. One of those critics was a man named uh, Muhammad ibn Afaliq that you mentioned, who was in, in the east of the Arabian Peninsula. And he ridiculed Muhammad al Wahhab, um, basically called him an idiot, an imposter. Uh, he said that he was engaging in ijtihad or using independent legal reasoning, a very loaded uh, term. But uh, I mean, Muhammad al Wahhab, he charged ahead, he ignored the critics. And uh, eventually, he would he would win the day. You know, interesting. Just a follow up to that, uh, which I found amusing, by the way, that you wrote. Uh, Afalik actually challenged him to some religious instruction and questions, in which uh, Wahab had to answer in ten volumes, but Al Wahab could not do so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he it was sort of this, you know, one upmanship. If you're really such a great scholar, then answer me, you know, these questions and do it in ten volumes. Anyone who engages in ijtihad certainly can do that. Um, but to, to be fair, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, his, his view was that people like Ibn Afalik and a lot of his critics um, who are accusing him of ijtihad, of engaging in independent legal reasoning, they completely misunderstood what he was doing. He wasn't trying to say that he had you know, supreme knowledge of the Islamic legal tradition. What he was arguing was that Muslims had lost their, their way because of straying from core Islamic beliefs and practices that had been taught by the Prophet Muhammad. Um, the most important thing, and if you read the Quran, it's very, it's extremely um, present theme, the turning away from the worship of, of idols, from worshiping anything apart from God. And Muhammad al-Duhab believed, influenced by Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, that his contemporaries were not directing worship to God alone. And that's all he was trying to say, to return to Islam as, as, the, as the Prophet taught it. 
Um, key period happens here is that Wahab is actually expelled from Aluyana and finds himself in the nearby town of Aldiria, where he meets the ruler Muhammad ibn Saud in 1736. Now, the exact years he wrote in the book is disputed among scholars, but nevertheless, he gains unilateral support. And Ibn Saud begins to impose his authority over neighboring towns without Wahhab's teaching following them. Uh, it is here that the very first Saudi state is born, and thus the initial growth of Wahhabism as well, where there's paradigm between Ibn Saud's military might and al-Wahhab's teachings and scholarship would form the very first Saudi state. And that is still current model today. Uh, could you explain more about this period? Yeah, so Muhammad al Wahhab is something of a, he's a lightning rod, of course, because of the, the controversial nature of his beliefs. And he begins preaching in the town of Horaimala. He's uh, soon, he relocates to the more powerful town where he was born of El Oyeina. And he's preaching there for a couple of years. And he had the support of the town's ruler. Uh, but somebody else uh, who had you know, a lot of influence over him, and a, a ruler in the eastern Arabian Peninsula who thought Muhammad al Wahhab's ideas were abominable, uh, he put pressure on that ruler to uh, either kill him or expel him. So Muhammad al Wahhab was expelled from uh, from that town, and he found refuge in the town of Adiraya. Uh, and this is in about 1744. We're not the the histories aren't entirely. Uh, clear about when the relocation happened. And it was there that he met Muhammad bin Saud, who had been the ruler of this little um, town. This, these are all little oasis towns. So it's a, it's a, Nejd is a big strip of, of desert, but there are pockets of oases where settled life uh, grew up. And uh, one of those towns, Adiraya, which was not the strongest, but it was one of the, close, it was one of the strongest uh, towns um, he welcomed Muhammad al Wahhab. He embraced him. He said that we'll support you. Um, we won't kick you out. We have one condition, and that is that you not leave us and abandon us for another town. And it, in the succeeding years, uh, this agreement had been reached. In the succeeding years, the little petty uh, emirate of Adiria begins to expand. It begins to conquer its neighbors, neighboring towns, and it does so in the name of the doctrine of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, that is the doctrine of, of pure Tawhid and true Islam, uh, fighting, waging jihad against them uh, for the basis of expanding the ambit of, of the faith. Um, and that's that's sort of the origin of the, of the Saudi political enterprise. It's important to understand that it might seem like, okay, you know, so there's another state being formed. But the reality is there hadn't been a strong state in this area of the Arabian Peninsula since the 11th century. Um, hundreds and hundreds of years had passed since a, a state building enterprise had taken root here. And the reason is that there is really little in the way of natural resources to to sustain it. Um, but because of the uh, the the faith um, brought in the um, the the conviction of faith brought by Muhammad Abdul Heb and his, and his followers, uh, the this area was able to cobble together a state-building enterprise for the first time in a long, long time. You you state in chapter three of the book that al-Wahhab justified offensive jihad against the unbelievers and the polytheists, and he justifies it by quoting Quran 839, meaning fight there till there is no fitna. But al-Wahhab, as you mentioned, uh, would gloss over fitna as shirk. First, what is yeah. fitna in shirk? And secondly, was this, was this for the purpose of eliminating the polytheists from the Yemen of based on his own doctrinal views of jihad? 
Yeah, so his view of um, expansionary jihad, it, they're basically, first of all, to, just to step back, and and is the Islamic legal tradition, there are essentially two two versions of of jihad when, in the sense of uh, armed struggle. One is defensive jihad, uh, jihad against an invading enemy, and the other is what is known as jihad at-talab, or jihad of seeking out the enemy, which is often termed offensive jihad or missionary jihad in the Islamicist literature. And uh, Muhammad Abdul Wahab, uh, sticking to tradition, he, he believed in both. He began his mission, uh, if you follow the histories of, of the movement that, that the movement produced, the early experience of the Saudi state was one of defensive jihad. They were actually being attacked. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that's true, but that's part of the of the kind of mythology um, of Wahhabi Saudi history. Um, but moving forward in time to about 10 years or so after the, the founding of the first Saudi state in 17, around 1744, um, we, we noticed that jihad begins to be justified in offensive terms. And one of the, the off-quoted uh, Quranic verses justifying that expansionary jihad is the one that you cited. Uh, it's fight them until there is no fitna. Um, and the religion is, I think it's and, and the religion is God's entirely. And a traditional understanding of fitna, not the uh, exclusive uh, understanding of fitna, according to Quranic exegesis, uh, is shirk. Fitna can mean a whole lot of things. It can mean strife. It can mean temptation. Um, and but but it was often glossed as shirk, meaning polytheism. So in essence, what the verse is saying then is fight them. That is the unbelievers until there is no polytheism and the religion is God's entirely. That's a very you know kind of clean way of reading the verse. And according to Muhammad Amr Abdul Wahab, this was basically licensed to fight jihad against polytheists for the purpose of eliminating polytheism. That doesn't mean necessarily killing everyone who adheres to polytheism, but it does mean eliminating polytheism uh, by converting people to the proper faith. Um, you know, let's go back to expansion for a little bit here, how the Saudi state expands, but it's also relating to a, a, a current period. Uh, as you highlight in the book, when a town's conversion to Wahhabism is made, a Wahhabi preacher actually is invited to instruct the Wahhabi doctrine and implement uh, Islamic law, Sharia. One must also swear loyalty, bayat. And it's something I'm I'm a little bit familiar with because this is similar to how Al-Qaeda is operated, when it used to operate. Those who are officially accepted swear, the first thing to do is swear loyalty to bin Laden first. Um, Was this a prerequisite for Wahhab uh, that they would to swear loyalty to him first or to swear to to God first? Uh, well, well, bayah in, in Arabic, which means say it's kind of a, a covenant or a, um, a an agreement between ruler and ruled, often translated as pledge of allegiance. It, in the according to the early Wahhabi histories, the when a town was conquered, uh, the people of that town had to swear and to swear loyalty to both the ruler, um, Muhammad ibn Saud, and the, the preacher, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab. So these were kind of presented as co-leaders of the, uh, the Saudi Wahhabi political enterprise. Um, this is not a, um, 
and this is an aberration really from the uh, the theory of, of Bayon, the theory of rulership in, in Islamic law, um, which says that you're supposed to give bayah to the ruler, often termed the imam or the caliph. Um, but the what you see in the subsequent development of the, the Saudi state is that the the role of the sheikh, especially after he he dies in 1792, uh, there is just one ruler, and it, it's very much a Saudi ruler, a member of the Saudi family, uh, and he acts as the kind of the the imam, the supreme leader of this state, uh, which is modeled after the early Islamic state in, in their understanding. He Al Wahhab was alleged to have his followers perform hij hijrah to the territories under Wahhabism, which created the the Emirate of Dhiyab. The first Saudi state. Can you explain what hijrah is to our audience? Yeah, hijrah, which is often translated as emigration, uh, means the emigration from tr traditionally is understood this way: emigration from the land of unbelief to the land of belief, from the from the land of kufr, unbelief to the land of Islam, uh, a place where the laws of Islam are are applied, where they are being upheld, where there is a Muslim ruler. Um, and it's a duty, according to uh, the Quran uh, and Islamic law, for Muslims to to leave from a territory that is dominated by unbelief to a territory that is not dominated by unbelief, um, unless there is ikra, unless the one is um, basically unable to do so because of oppression or something like that. That's the traditional concept. But it was very controversial in Wahhabism, and this was a theme particularly among Muhammad al Wahhab's critics, uh, that he was urging followers to undertake hijrah to the the nascent Saudi state on the grounds that this was the only place where Islamic rule existed. And therefore, if you wanted to be a good Muslim, you had to uh, relocate. Now, that's a very prominent theme in the refutational literature. It's not that prominent in the early um, Wahhabi literature, the, the writings of Muhammad Abdul Wahhab. He mentions it, but it, it doesn't come across to me as a historian as one of his central preoccupations. He seems to have been much more interested in, in expanding the domain of the of the Saudi state rather than urging anyone who agreed with him to to relocate. One thing I've learned, another thing I learned from the book actually is that the Wahhabis were not a people adhering to uh, non-canonical taxes or muklis or tributes, kidwa, to financially support themselves. Um, but they did partake in war spoils from their successful conquests and expansionism of the Saudi kingdom. Uh, can you elaborate more on this? Because I find this to be, you know, interestingly enough, that their most of their finances came from the conquering of other towns, which uh, is, I mean, how many towns are there to conquer? <laughs> well, actually, it took a long time for them to, to conquer. It took some 20 years for them to conquer their immediate environment um, because of the political and the fractious political nature of that area. Um, sorry, what was the question? The question is about um, tribute. Uh, and, yeah, did they? Uh, how did they uh, get by just on conquering towns for the for their uh, uh, to financially support themselves? Well, it was a conquest state. Um, it wasn't a state where you know you could tax your residents because they were engaging in you know considerable you know lucrative trade with the outside world. Um, quite to the contrary, uh, Muhammad Abdul Wahab and his, his followers prohibited trade with lands considered to be lands of unbelief. Uh, so that was off the table. Um, but, you know, uh, following the model of the early Islamic state, and this is their vision of how things were proceeding, they were setting out to conquer uh, 
and seize the the wealth of neighboring towns. They were going so far by the by the the turn of the the nineteenth century, so the the late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds, they were beginning to conquer as far north as as Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, they took the Hejaz in the west in the seventeen nineties. They took the um, the the rich area to the east, Al Ahsa, um, uh, sometime before that, and so you know they were able to bring together a very wealthy state, and a lot of wealth was flowing into uh, the capital of Adiria. Al Wahhab dies in 1792, and the new Saudi ruler is Abdulaziz bin Muhammad Al Saud, the eldest son of Muhammad ibn Saud, and the son-in-law of Ibn Abdul Wahab. It is through this new transition that the rules, the roles of the state and the Wahhabi creed was clear more than even its previous uh, successor. Can you tell us more about this transition in this period? Yeah, so the way I, I write about it in the book is that um, until the death of Muhammad al Wahhab, there was some ambiguity as, as to who held actual uh, authority uh, within the state. This is at least according to the earliest uh, Wahhabi history that we have, which was written in the 1790s. And according to that history, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and Muhammad bin Saud functioned um, more or less as co-rulers. They they were both given bayar, the oath of allegiance. There are many episodes in which Muhammad Abdul Wahhab is seen making political decisions, uh, giving orders. But when he dies in 1792, uh, there's really an, it's a new era because the the ruler at the I can't um, is it Saud at that time? I think it's Abdul Aziz still. Uh, the ruler Abdul Aziz. Uh, he f- begins to function as the as the ultimate uh, authority in the state. It's now a Saudi-dominated state. The El Saud are its rulers. The scholars, um, the Wahhabi sheikhs, uh, they continue to exercise uh, great influence in their teachers, their instructors. Uh, they are masters of of the law. Um, they they are in charge of uh, carrying out the and implementing the Sharia, Islamic law. Um, but they are they are subordinate, you could say, to uh, to the political authority. But the political authority, it, it needs to be understood here. It's not like the relationship that we've seen in the 20th century between the, the Saudi rulers and the Wahhabi scholars, the preachers, because at least according to all the historical evidence that we have at our disposal, the Saudi rulers in the 18th and early 19th centuries were deeply committed to the Wahhabi creed. They were just as committed to it as the Wahhabi preachers, and they were fighting jihad, expansionary jihad, uh, believing that they were going to convert uh, these polytheist lands to their north and west and east and south. Abdul Aziz, uh, he has a huge influence in how the third Saudi state grew after the beginning of the 20th century by growing the borders and keeping the scholars content, even though they criticized Abdul Aziz in doing so. How was he able to gain favor with them? Yeah, so we're we're jumping quite far ahead now. So from yeah. the <laughs> the eighteenth nineteenth centuries to the early twentieth century. So just to just to back up, you know the um there the first Saudi state is destroyed in eighteen eighteen by an invading uh, Egyptian army. Uh, there is a second Saudi state that exists for some fifty sixty years uh, in the nineteenth century, um, but that is. Uh, torn apart in the civil war and in 1902 uh, another member a new young member of the saudi family uh, abdul aziz ibn abdul rahman al saud 
he seizes the uh, the town of Riyadh in Nejd and begins what is known as the the third Saudi state. And the third Saudi state, which is the the modern Saudi state as we have it today, um, it cobbles together the ancestral territory of the first Saudi state. It, it's very um, and it does so in collaboration with the Wahhabi scholars uh, who are or, who are fighting um, or who are advocating and justifying the military efforts of of Abdulaziz as jihad as jihad against mm. infidels, uh, unbelievers. So just on this the same model as the early Saudi state. Um, but you you asked about how he managed to kind of keep the scholars under his control, even as he kind of uh, did made moves politically that they disagreed with. Is that is yes, my that's right? Understand you correct? Yeah. So I mean, there were a lot of things that that I mean, Abdulaziz was um, he was Wahhabi, but he was also very practical, and so he wasn't uh, a fanatic a fanatical adherent to the Wahhabi doctrine by any means. But he understood that his society adhered to this doctrine; that these scholars had prominent place. Uh, in the in the in the society and in the in the political system even, um, but when it came to agreements with the British, uh, there were there were sometimes that it seems like the scholars weren't even aware of what was going on. So uh, Abdulaziz got a subsidy from the British. Now the British, are, of course, are condemned as poly, as unbelievers, mm-hmm. and there should be no collaboration with unbelievers. Uh, no. Um, no um, inkling of, of loyalty to to them. That That is seen as something that expels one from the faith. So in some cases, the scholars were not quite aware, I think, of what was going on. But in other cases, they just kind of succumbed to, to reality. Um, there have been a long period of time in Wahhabi history with without a central authority, um, with rulers much worse in their vi- view than the King Abdulaziz, um, who did not agree with Wahhabism at all. Um, so uh, what what happened is that King Abdulaziz was able through, um, you know, it, it's not entirely clear how his personality, his his force of his will, his influence over these scholars uh, to to kind of agree to allow him to create a modern state in the international state system um, that was not going to be a jihadi conquest state. Um, and to just kind of submit. And they invoked a lot of traditional uh, uh, statements from, from the prophet about obeying one's leader. Um, there, was a, there was also a radical uh, movement known as the Ikhwan, which was rebelling against uh, Abdulaziz at this time on the basis, partly at least, uh, of strict militant Wahhabism. And the scholars, uh, well, they, they were not being obeyed by this group either. So they kind of found themselves caught between these these crazy radicals and this modernizing uh, king who was at least paying lip service to to the the ideals of Wahhabism and they chose uh, Abdulaziz and Abdulaziz also gave them a whole lot of authority when it came to um, regulating the educational system the religious institutions uh, etc. I have to apologize for the jump in time because uh, <laughs> I, I my last that was. Um... One of my last questions. Uh, Richard, do you have any follow-up questions for me? 
Well, my questions are, are quite basic by comparison. But one of the things when I've read about Wahhabism, I wondered how it compares and if it could be compared to any movement within Christianity. So what jumps to my mind would be Puritanism. And, and after the Puritans took power in England after the Civil War and were doing things like banning Christmas and wanting to get back to this purity of the faith and, and engaging in quite brutal practices like the, the execution of unmarried mothers, for example. So do, does that comparison to any kind of form of Christianity hold up or does it break down in parts? Yeah, well, I'm no expert in Christian theology, so I, I can't really assess the um, the accuracy uh, of any of such comparisons. But what I can say is that a lot of the early Europeans who encountered Wahhabism as early as the 18th century, uh, they interpreted Wahhabism as a kind of Puritan movement. And for that reason, in fact, they, they were very sympathetic to it. They thought, oh, he's trying to, this, this preacher, Muhammad Abdul Wahab, he's trying to remove all the accretions, and the false things that have built up in the religion over time and bring it back to its, its core, its pure, its pure core. And they saw that as, as a noble enterprise. So I'm sure there is a lot to, to these analogies. Um, I think that the, you know, a, a good Wahhabi would say that they're, of course, completely false analogies because the... Christians were Trinitarians and they believed in three, you know, three headed mm. God. And that's, that's mistaken. Um, so I think that the kind of maybe the austerity, the, um, of, of Wahhabism, the idea that there are no images to be shown whatsoever, uh, makes it different. There is one of the most thing, the thing that comes to my mind though, with that, of, of an accurate, possibly accurate comparison, um, is the idea of, of saint worship. Um, you know, Luther and other uh, Puritan reformers, Protestant reformers were were deeply uh, against the institution of of the of saints. The idea that you would pay someone um, for certain favors in the afterlife. That, so there are parallels there between Muhammad ibn Abdullah, who was also trying to um, to go after saint worship, and including the idea that in, in Muhammad Abdullah's case, there were examples where he was. Uh, accusing people of, of taking money uh, for guarding these these shrines and things like that. So yeah, there's there's certainly a, a, an article, perhaps even a dissertation, to be to be written on that subject. Right. Well, what a figure like Sayyid Qutb, where would he sit in relation to Wahhabism? Because certainly, Adam, when we did the series on 9-11, we looked at the writings of Qutb as being uh, underpinning the kind of revolutionary movements in Algeria and the uh, more abortive one in Egypt. So would he? What would his proximity be, or, or that kind of thing, or indeed, if I expand that a little, uh, would there be any? This is a bit like my Puritan question, but would there be any comparison yeah. between like the Iranian Revolution and the um, the doctors of, of the Ayatollah then? And is, could that be considered a kind of sheer form of Wahhabism, or or again, does that break down? Does that comparison break down at some point? Yeah, no. There's there's a, a great deal of overlap between Sayyid Qutbstaat and and Wahhabism. I don't believe that Sayyid Qutb was influenced by Wahhabism. He was influenced to some degree by Ibn Taymiyyah, who had influenced uh, the founder of Wahhabism. Um, and I, but even then, I'm not sure that really gave rise to Muhammad uh, to to say Qutb's ideas, which were influenced, of course, by uh, Maududi in, in Pakistan, India. Uh, so Qutb's idea was that because of a failure to to implement Islamic law, to to um, to observe what he called in some people before him, Hakamiya, the sovereignty of God in the political legal domain, uh, that 
Islamic society had reverted to one of jahiliya or uh, pre-Islamic paganism. And you do find hints of this in Wahhabism. Ibn Abd al-Wahhab and his followers occasionally refer to their, their contemporary scene as one of jahiliya. So that's that's uh, an accurate comparison right there. Um, but Muhammad Abd Ibn Abd al-Wahhab, his primary, um, let's say, preoccupation was eliminating and uh, persecuting saint worship, what he believed to be saint worship. Uh, so what's it called? Uh, hagiolatry, we want to use a fancy term. Um, and he that was what he wanted to get rid of. He, he didn't, the idea that Islam, he did, there was emphasis on applying and implementing Islamic law. And there was some um, degree of uh, grievance in his writing about the failure to apply Islamic law. But this was an era that didn't, where there were no legal codes. There was no European uh, legal political system being introduced, not in Central Arabia, at least at, at this point in time. So he was not, um, uh, he was not uh, kind of um, doing any, any kind of activism opposed to, to the failure to apply Islamic law. That was say a Qutb's project. Um, but there is a degree of overlap because what they're both saying is that you, you're not, um, giving worship entirely to God, unless you do what I say. In the Qutb's case, it was unless you give rule to God alone. In Muhammad Abdul Wahab's case, it was unless you, um, you direct worship to God alone in the sense of leaving off idols. Um, but they both considered uh, what they were kind of um, what they were attacking to be a kind of idol worship, and they accused broad sections of society, at least um, on the on the face of their writings, of of having reverted to to kufr to unbelief. So, and, and over time, and I can I can continue to go into this. The, these uh, these concepts merge. Um, and some of the ideas of Sayyid Qutb are kind of grafted onto uh, Wahhabi theology uh, in such a way that they are they become mainstream in in Sunni jihadism today. For example, the the scholars of the movement, such as uh, Abu Muhammad al Maktasi, they tend not to reference Sayyid Qutb very much. Qutb had some some problems in his theology that aren't consistent with Wahhabism, and they they agree more with uh, Wahhabism as being uh, sound creed. Uh, but they're very much influenced by the idea of Hakamiya uh, that was introduced by Sayyid Qutb, and they've just kind of grafted it on to uh, Muhammad Abdul Wahab's conception of Tawheed. Okay. One of the things I common heard you made in, in an interview, actually, or a, a presentation, was that Wahhabism was hostile to democracy. Well, that's not necessarily shocking to me. A lot of people are hostile to democracy. But the reason being, they saw it as a form of polytheism. And I didn't quite understand that particularly like theological critique of democracy, that it was a, a kind of rival god almost. What exactly are they saying there? And then beyond that, if if democratic government is out, does Wahhabism have something akin to a divine right of kings that you can somehow theologically select a ruler or determine policy? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that Wahhabism writ large is opposed to democracy. A whole lot of, I think it's a... Um, Radical actors have made a, a, a big deal about uh, democracy being a version of polytheism, and in doing so, they have drawn on Wahhabi or Salafi theology, uh, including some of the the leading lights of the Sunni jihadi movement, such as Abu Muhammad al-Maktasi. One of his books is titled uh, "Democracy: A Religion," and 
the reason why for them it's a religion, it is, it's a version of polytheism is because um, according to Wahhabi theology, you are uh, required to direct all worship to God alone. And that includes um, adhering to his laws alone. But um, God in this understanding of, of the religion is the sole legislator. He is a, a sharia, the one who, who, who makes law. No one else can make law. So if you allow another human being to make law, that means that you are setting him up as a God and essentially you are worshiping him. So that's, that's the idea um, that they are presenting, um, that people who are, are legislators, and usually it's, it's kind of argued in terms of legislation, not so much as who is the as executive authority, it's about legislation. So parliament is a big term in these, uh, in these diatribes. Uh, people who, who make laws, who serve as legislators, even if they're trying just to capture what's in, in the Quran, in the legal tradition, they're actually making laws, human man-made laws, and in doing so, um, serving as kinds of idols. Did that make sense? Yeah. One of my final so, questions for you, Cole, is this. with the Now with the war on terrorism nearly finished and uh, the decline of Al-Qaeda and groups like Boko Haram and Abu Sayyaf are declining all around Southeast Asia, Africa. How prominent is Wahhabism today in the kingdom? And do you see a rise in Islamist groups in the future? Very good question. You know, um, and just to back up as I as I uh, routinely am doing. Uh, so, you know, in the in the early 20th century, you still had this this militant version of Wahhabism that I was explaining, um, you know, some 30 minutes ago, that was still the kind of dominant version of Wahhabism. But over time, in the 20th century, because of the influence of King Abdulaziz and his successors, the Wahhabi clerical class, the scholarly class, uh, they adopt something of a more moderate version of Wahhabism. It's a version of Wahhabism that it's kind of, it's, it doesn't let go of any of its, its creedal tenets. Everything is still the same in theory, but they approach the greater Islamic world as actually Islamic. It's no longer us, the true Muslims, and everyone else, the polytheists. That's no longer the, the conception of it. So they've kind of um, come to some sort of an agreement um, with the, the greater outside world. Um, that version of Wahhabism was challenged by, by jihadis, of course, who argued, no, this is, this is not the correct version of Wahhabism. Um, but until very recently, this sort of moderate, still in, intolerant, but you could say uh, moderate in terms of its activism and, and exclusivism version of Wahhabism uh, was still sort of the uh, enshrined version of the faith according to uh, the Saudi authorities. This has really been changing, however, under uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, becomes Crown Prince in, in 2017, um, after his father Salman is made king. And very recently, in fact, Mohammed bin, bin Salman, or MBS as he's commonly known, he introduced a new holiday, which is called Founding Day, which is about rewriting the history of the first Saudi state uh, refounding it on a new new date in a new year that is 1727 before the beginning of Wahhabism, and thereby trying to make the argument that the Saudi uh, state in its history was not actually wedded to Wahhabism. And he's made a lot of comments to the effect that Muhammad bin al-Wahhab was just a preacher, 
he was one of many prominent uh, people in the first Saudi state. And so he's really tried to, to undermine the, the legacy of uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab as a significant influence on the formation of, of the state. And I think that this is a, a big part of his effort to kind of reform the kingdom into something much more like uh, the United Arab Emirates than it has traditionally been, which is kind of a uh, an, an Islamic Islamist almost state. Um, there is, of course, still a great deal of Islamic opposition. Uh, a lot of it is now based outside of the kingdom. There's a very prominent preacher who I've been studying recently named uh, Ahmed Sayyid, who is based in Turkey, and has hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube. Uh, who's doing a series of, of classes, uh, online classes for free, uh, trying to teach people to be uh, good Muslims and ultimately, though he doesn't say this, uh, oppose states like modern Saudi Arabia. So yes, the opposition continues. It still uh, continues in a way that's influenced by um, a militant Wahhabism founded in the 18th century. And uh, we'll see who wins. Cole, what projects are you working on today and what's in the future for you? So one project is to to study this transformation under under MBS and the, the the holiday of founding day, its implications, the way that the kingdom is trying to rewrite its history, it's trying to move away both from the legacy of Wahhabism and the legacy of uh, the Islamist movement of the later 20th century, which is known as the Sahwa. So that's that's one project. And then another project that I'm always working on is the um, the history of and formation of the Sunni jihadi movement from the 1970s to to the present. Wahhabism, the history of a militant Islamic movement is the name of the book. Cole Bunzel, the author, thank you very much for coming on today's show. My thank pleasure. You. Cool, thank you.